Right, guys, welcome. Glad to have you guys here at New Life. Listen, you guys are the, you're not the, this is the frozen chosen, man. You are the faithful chosen. I mean, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much for coming out today. I want to say a big hello to everyone worshiping with us in North Platte, as well as here at our Kearney campus. We have actually combined. So there are people that typically worship in the venue that are here. Let me hear people that typically worship in the venue. Let me hear from you. You are, you guys are definitely representing well. I love it. I love it. And then those of you that worship in the main auditorium all the time, come on, let me hear you. Come on. Yeah, take that venue, people. <clears throat> you might win dodgeball. You might win dodgeball <clears throat> at our New Life United events, but uh, that's where it ends. Um, no, so seriously, guys, if uh, this is your first time with us this year, notice how I said that. Your first time with us this year, thank you so much for coming today. Um, if this is your first time with us in this current teaching series, I'm getting ready to give a pop quiz. Um, you guys get a 100% right off the bat because you haven't been here before or you haven't been here during this teaching series. Now, how many of you guys have been here uh, in, for one of the last two weeks of January so far? You've been here. Okay, now we're going to have a pop quiz on what I've been talking about. Good luck. All right, so... Here, here's what we've been talking about. Are you ready? It's a fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. God is a blank father. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> off, of the, off of the Apostles' Creed, God is a blank father. <clears throat> Nor Platt has it already. I can hear them screaming it. He is an almighty father. Turn to the neighbor and go, oh, okay, oh, oh, okay. That's where he's going. That's where he's going. Yes. So far, so far, it's not bad. Zero, zero for one. Okay, uh, let's see if we can pick it up. Maybe we can get an even thing here. All right, the heavens and the earth were blank by God. Okay, I, see, I gave you that one, though. I mean, that's an easy one, all right? That's easy. So, created by God, congratulations. High five someone next to you and say, we're back in the game. We're back in the game. All right, here's the next one. Jesus is the blank. The Christ, Wow. That was so good. You guys got rescued by one really good, you know, straight-A student. Okay, good job. Um, let's go to the next one. Jesus is the blank son of God. See, there you go. See how that works? I, like, I give you a hard one, give you an easy one. Give you a hard one, give you an easy one. Keep you motivated, keep you with me. Here we go for the big punch, the big punch line. Our Lord is... <laughs> I love it, I love it. I don't know, I, I don't know what everyone else heard, but our Lord is awesome, all kinds of things. How about if you flip it around, the creed says that Jesus Christ is, so the answer is our Lord is Jesus. Now this is what we've been talking about up to this moment as we've been going through the Apostles' Creed and kind of breaking it down, and I want to be very clear with everybody that's here today. The Apostles' Creed is what we're using as a filter <clears throat> to point us to God's word so that we can dig into God's word and we can find out the truth that, <clears throat> that lies behind these statements. You know, the writers of the Apostles' Creed were trying to make sure that there was a foundation that every person that would call themselves a Christian then would have to step on these truths and have to digest them and basically take these truths and, uh, you know, insert them into their own life. And so that's kind of where we're at. And with this teaching series, we're going to continue on now to another portion of the Apostles' Creed as we kind of walk through this in a six-week teaching series. It's going to end, actually, the very first Sunday 
in February. But why don't you just kind of, uh, you can read quietly along with me, but this is what we've already tackled. This is where the quiz came from. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Here's where we're going to pick it up. Who was, Jesus that is, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, he descended to the dead, the third day he arose again from the dead. So today, as we get started, we're going to really kind of jump in and just kind of tackle that very first big line that we believe, we believe that Jesus, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that's it's vital, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Let's talk about that for a little while. Uh, you guys know who Larry King is? You know, the guy who does a lot of big interviews, right? Um, Larry King was asked one day, he goes, listen, if you could pick throughout history one person, and you could just interview one person throughout history, who would it be? Larry King, without hesitation, came back and he said, I would pick Jesus. And he goes, I, it's the, reason, the reason why I would pick Jesus is because I want to ask him one critical question. Jesus, were you born of, of, of a Virgin Mary? He said, because if depending on how he answers that question, is going to change history for me. And he's right. Depending on how you answer that question, it changes literally everything. The virgin birth is one of the two bookends uh, surrounding the life of Jesus. And without believing in the virgin birth, the very deity of Jesus begins to collapse right underneath your feet. See, if you take the virgin birth out of theology, you begin to affect the entire picture of God. And for a lot of Christians, especially in the day in which we live, we like to pick and choose what we are going to believe. We like to pick and choose what what feels comfortable to us and what doesn't feel comfortable to us. And the virgin birth, Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the virgin, that's one of the hardest things for people to wrap their hearts and their minds around. It's one of the hardest things to put complete faith in God over. And people wrestle over and so they're like, well, I'll just leave that out. I'm going to discover and you know, follow Jesus and everything else. But the problem is when you start to remove chunks and pieces of theology, you affect the entire picture of who God is. Very much like an ecosystem. In an ecosystem, in, an habit, in a habitat, um, you, you cause one animal to be extinct or one plant life to be extinct and it begins to affect the entire habitat. You know, like right now, there is a concern amongst some scientists that the honeybee um, is, you know, moving closer and closer and closer to a point of extinction. Well, what would the outcome be if the honeybee was taken out of the ecosystem of Earth? What would happen? Pollination would stop. And when pollination stops, then certain foods and plants and uh, vegetables and fruits and these kinds of things, they all come to a to a cease they come to a screeching halt and then famine takes over and then people die it's amazing how one little thing that flies around could have the total effect of devastation to humanity if it were to no longer exist in the same way if you remove the virgin birth jesus then ceases to become god jesus being god starts to disappear When you just take that one little piece out, you're like, well, I'll believe everything else, but I'm not going to believe that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. That's crazy. But when you take it out, then Jesus is no longer God. So watch what happens if Jesus is no longer God. That means that Jesus doesn't live a sinless life. 
And if Jesus doesn't live a sinless life, then Jesus isn't the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And if Jesus isn't the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross, then we've got no way to be made right in God's eyes. And if I can't be made right in God's eyes, then I'm doomed to separation from God for eternity. So is the virgin birth and Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit important? I would say to you, it's vital. Let me explain it to you another way. Be like coloring, colors, or painting. Is anybody here like, you know, you're... You're creative, you like art, that kind of stuff, and you like to paint. Anybody? Anybody in North Platte, just put your hand up. Put it way up, like boldly put it up. Wave it back and forth. Hey, right? Okay, like that. Okay, there you go. So you like to do that. That's really not my, not really my thing, but if I asked you, please, please, it's a beautiful day out. It's in the middle of the day. It's noon, and the, the sky, it's just a midday sky, and it's beautiful, Right? And you look up right now and you just kind of see that sky. What color is that sky? It's not a trick question. What color is the sky? It's blue, right. And there's like little puffy clouds that are out there. We'll go Bob Ross on it, right? Be like, happy trees. Some, some little angel clouds. Um, Bob Ross, he cracks me up. I do like his hairstyle though, right? I think it, we should bring it back. Um, so... You got a blue sky with some puffy clouds, and I say to you, I want you to paint that for me. Man, I I want it so good because I've got some relatives that they live, they live in a place where they never see it like this, right? And I want them to be able to see it, so I want you to paint it for me. Oh, but by the way, you can't use the color blue, and you can't combine colors to make blue. But I want it to look just like this. And you start going at it, you're you're not really truly going to be able to depict for me what I'm seeing with my own eyes just by removing what? One color. You take one color out and all of a sudden the image that you're trying to paint will never reflect what it's really supposed to look like. That's the same thing when you remove the virgin birth. You're never able to reflect the true picture, the true nature of who God is anymore. It begins to erode. doesn't have the same effect I ship the picture that has no blue sky to my friends. They're going to look at me and go, that's dull. That doesn't have have any life to it. And a lot of people are taking the life right out of God because they're walking away from one of the cornerstones of theology, Jesus being born of the virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. So as we look at this even a little deeper, the power of the virgin birth is really less about the woman And really, it's more about being conceived by the Holy Spirit. Follow me for just a moment on this. It's the part of being conceived by the Holy Spirit that gives, that causes Jesus to be born as God with a sinless nature. I said it last week. It's very important that you don't twist these two things around. Jesus is God who took on a human nature. Jesus is sinless, he's perfect, who took on a human nature. Jesus isn't a human baby who takes on a God nature. You get those two things flipped around, and now you've just blown the whole power behind the conceived of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. He doesn't have a sin nature. Jesus has no sin in him. It's what makes him the perfect sacrifice. 
It's what makes him, you know, the entity that gives his life on the cross so that you and me might have a relationship with God. And we're going to talk way more about that today. But this virgin birth was prophesied 700 years before it even happened in Isaiah. Take a look at what Isaiah said in chapter 7, verse 14. He says, all right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and will call him what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, the power behind being conceived of the Holy Spirit is the fact that God comes to be among us. That's the bottom line of this whole thing. A lot of people focus in on the fact that God's all-powerful and God can do anything. And that is true, folks. There's no doubt about that and never forget it. But many times we stop at that point when we look at the virgin birth and we look at Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit and we're like, well, I believe it because, man, God's all-powerful and since he's all-powerful, he can do anything he wants to do. And if you stop right there, that's good. But would you like to, be, would you like to think of it from the perspective of great? you want to think of it from the perspective of great then you have to go beyond that and you have to start looking and saying this the focus of jesus being conceived by the holy spirit and born of a virgin is the fact that god came to us just for a moment i know it sounds simple but god came to us why is that so important why is it so important to get to that point god came to us because of the very things that you struggle with and you wrestle with. So the next time you're struggling with God, does God even care about me? You need to reflect back. God came to us. The next time that you're thinking and you're struggling with the fact, does God even know me? Does he even know me? You got to go back to Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. God came to us. He knows you. The next time you're struggling with, does God hear me? It seems like my prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing right back to me. You need to know today, God, he came to us. And the next time that you're struggling with God's grace, is God's grace even enough for me? If I sin so much that I've sinned my way out of a complete and, and utter desolation where there's no hope for me, you need to be reminded today, God came to us. The extravagant love of God came to us. Hang on to that. Never let it go because the enemy, our enemy, Satan, is going to do everything he can to drive a wedge between you and the true understanding of who God is. He's going to try to warp your mind and cause you to believe that God and his love and his mercy and his grace and his compassion and his sacrifice is not enough for you. You need to remind yourself, God came to us. He didn't just come to us once. He's, he keeps coming to us. He pursues us. Now, a side note, Mary, because we don't talk about Mary a lot. Mary, in the evangelical Protestant faith, kind of really gets overlooked in many different ways and because most of our attention um, goes to Jesus, rightly so. We're not saved because of what Mary did. We, we don't have a future hope because of what Mary did. We have a future hope of spending eternity with God because of what Jesus did. However, there are a few things that I want to highlight about, about Mary. 
Number one, Mary could not have been the only virgin, teenage virgin, that was living in what we know as Israel right now. So if you think to yourself, well, why was Mary chosen? Maybe she was like the only virgin. (laughs) And listen, there's a lot of people, right? She could not have been. There had to be other young teenage girls that were virgins still. The Bible tells us this about Mary. Why was she chosen? She found favor with God. Favor with God. How did she find favor with God? And what in the world does that even mean? First off, right off the bat, favor with God literally means that she found grace. She found the grace of God. All right, well, since that's what it means, then what is grace? Can you earn grace? Can I increase grace? Can I cause God to show more favor to me than he does to you? Is there somehow I can cut in line and get ahead of you so that more grace is given to me than is given to you? And the answer to that is absolutely not. There is no more grace for Mary or more favor for Mary than there is grace and favor for you. There isn't anything special that Mary did to get the favor of God. The favor of God or the grace of God is unmerited. It's, it's given. It's undeserved. It's just something that God gives to us. It's given to all of humanity. There's a grace of God and the container of God is the same size for Mary as it is for me as it is for you. It's grace and it's undeserved, but it's what God gave. And God gave Mary grace. He gave Mary the favor. It's the same kind of favor. It's the same kind of grace that God wants to show to you and me today. In fact, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus and Jesus is your Lord and your leader, then the grace of God, the favor of God is on you. And if you haven't yet today, you need to know this. God's wanting to pour out his favor and his grace on you. He's waiting for you just to say, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to walk in your, in your footsteps. Grace is a free gift from God. So that means that there's nothing that Mary could do and there's nothing that you can do to cause God to love you more. It's impossible. And there's nothing that Mary could do, just like there's nothing that you can do that caused God to love you less. Grace is grace. It's flatlined. It doesn't, it's not affected. God's emotions of grace are not affected by your actions. Like, it doesn't mean like, oh, I did something really great. So God goes, oh man, more grace. It's, a, it's flatlined. It's consistent all the time. And that's, that's who God is. The favor of God, though, second little side note thought, the favor of God didn't cause Mary to escape from suffering and pain. Like, think with me for a moment. An angel shows up and says to her, Mary, you have found favor with God. How many of you guys would love for that to happen? Angel shows up and goes, hey, you found favor with God. You're going to be like this. Cha-ching, hit the jackpot, right? Life's going to be way better for me. It's going to be awesome. An angel told me I found favor with God. Wow, man, I should go like play the lottery. Maybe that will work now. Maybe I should do this or do that. Maybe I should take more risk. I don't know. I found favor with God. When Mary found favor with God, guess what? She suffered the shame of being pregnant before marriage because of the favor of God. Yeah, put those two things together for a moment. She, she almost lost her fiance because of the favor of God. He almost ditched her. He was going to leave her. He was going to separate and go, I'm not going to marry this girl because I have no idea how she became pregnant because we're not having sex. Because of the favor of God. Because of the favor of God, she raised a son to adulthood and he got murdered on a cross. Because of the favor of God. 
And for every mom that's out here right now, you'll feel this pain on the inside. Because of the favor of God, a mom raises her son and her son dies before the mom. Because of the favor of God. So the favor of God doesn't equate pain-free living. I think that's what we need to know today. That the favor, the grace of God, doesn't get in front of you and then keep you from, from you know, experiencing the pain that's on this earth. It doesn't keep you from experiencing the real life that's going to happen. It just simply means the grace of God is on you. And if you want the grace of God... I want you to have the grace of God. I want you to walk in the favor of God. But please just know this. When difficult things happen, it doesn't mean that God's not for you. It doesn't mean that God's abandoned you. It doesn't mean that God's left you. Difficult things are going to happen even when the favor of the Lord is on you. Are you with me so far? The second part of the creed that we're going to quickly move into that we were reading is that we believe that Jesus... He suffered, he was crucified, he died, was buried, he descended to the dead, and that he arose again. Now, this is the second bookend, I mean, and it really, it points to, it describes something I'm going to say for a moment, and hang on to this, it describes the work of Jesus. The statement starts brutally, he suffers, he's beaten, he's put on a cross, he dies, but it ends full of hope, doesn't it? That he arose on the third day. What caused Jesus to endure this kind of pain? What caused Jesus to go through this physical type of suffering? Two quick reasons for it. First and foremost, it's not you. It was obedience to God. Number one reason why Jesus went through this is his obedience to the Father. Now the second reason why Jesus went through this was for you. So when Jesus is on the cross and Jesus says... It is finished. Classic words, right? Everybody in here probably has heard that statement. When Jesus says, it is finished, who's he saying those words to? Is he saying those words to his father or is he saying those words to humanity? He's saying those words to his father. Because if Jesus were at that moment to speak to humanity, he would say these words. It has started. Right? It has started. If he was going to say it to us, he was saying it to God and he was going, it is finished. Basically saying, I've accomplished what you sent me to do and it's perfect. Think with me for a moment. Let's go back to the artist. Okay? And you're painting a beautiful painting. I mean, some of these artists can work on a painting for days, weeks, months. And there it is. They're picking out the colors of the palette so delicately, and they're using the different brushes and the different strokes. And remember, happy trees, happy trees. And they're drawing on it, and they're taking these moments, and they're just they're making light brushes, and they'll step away from it for a moment, and they'll come back to it, and they'll look at it, and they'll see the little spots they need to fill, fill in. And then all of a sudden, they take the brush, and they make the last stroke. They put the brush down, They step away from the canvas, they look at the canvas, and they go, it's finished. It doesn't need another brush stroke. Another brush stroke would be too much. And if I didn't add that last brush stroke, there wouldn't be enough. And Jesus is on the cross, and he says, it is finished. The work of Jesus was done perfectly. 
There isn't another little thing that Jesus needs to do, and there wasn't anything else that he needed to accomplish. There was like he accomplished all that he needed to, and there wasn't another moment that he needed to go. He breathed his last breath knowing he completed the mission perfectly. And by the way, the mission of Jesus was completed on time. Not to the hour, not to the minute, but to the second. It was the perfect timing of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding Jesus. And he knew at that moment, the final brushstroke, the final breath of Christ was breathed. And it is finished. The work of Jesus for you and for me is perfect. It's matchless. There isn't anything that compares to it. And because of that, we know a few things. We know that Jesus came to save us from our sin. How many of you guys believe that? Jesus came and he saved us of our sins because of his perfect work. But let's not stop there. A lot of people, they stop right there. And if Jesus only came, follow me with this before you throw anything. If Jesus only came to save us from our sin, then the painting is still missing a few strokes. If that's all it was, was just the forgiveness of sins, the painting needs some more strokes to it. In fact, what Jesus came to do is what I'm just going to say to you. We're going to use this term for a moment. He came to bring a great exchange. He came to do a great exchange. 2 Corinthians helps us understand the complete work that Jesus came to do. It says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, right? So we talked about earlier, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Two things that Jesus came to do. Number one, to be the offering for our sin. Second thing Jesus came to do was so that we could be made right with God. These two things, this great exchange that starts to take place. Now there's a word that we call this. It's a word I don't use in sermons because typically if you use words like this, then some people get it, but not all people get it. And so I never assume people know words like this, so I choose not to use them. But the word that is being portrayed here is a word called justification. So I'm going to write it up here. Justification. It means these two pieces that we just read about in that verse. It means that God, he takes away our sin. That's one. And that God makes us right in his eyes. That's two. And these two things happen simultaneously at the very same moment. There's this great exchange that takes place. Maybe I, I, I hesitate to say it this way, just to not cheapen the work of God, but to help you understand it. You guys ever watch one of those movies where someone is kidnapped and they want, to, they want a big ransom, they want a bunch of money for the person that's been kidnapped? You ever watch one of those movies like that? You guys are too holy for that? Okay. You know, there's guns and things like that. Just for, for my sake, because I do actually, you know, watch those movies every once in a while. Um, you, you know how it goes, right? So the woman, the woman's been kidnapped. The call's been made. Hey, we need $5 million. 
meet us in this dark alley. It's always a dark alley. If it's not a dark alley, it's like a seaside port. You guys know what I'm saying? It's like one of these moments, seaside port, fogs kind of come in, and the big black car pulls up, all dark windows, like three cars. There's like a suburban in front, suburban in back, and like this limousine. All things dark. Every guy pops out of the big suburbans with their guns, and they stand there. And then you got the one dude or two people standing there with a suitcase full of money, right? And the guy with the money is like, show, show me the girl. Show me the girl, right? And so the guy gets out with the girl, and he's holding the girl's arm, and there they stand. You know, like an old western high noon moment on the street right in front of the saloon. Now what's going to happen? Wah, wah, wah. Right? Like, who's going to die? What's going to go down here? And um, at that moment, the the guy's like, show me the money. So he opens up the suitcase, right? Here's all the money. Closes it back, and they start making their way to the center. And they get to the center, and he, you know, in a hesitating type of fashion, gives the money, and the guy lets the girl go, and they both go their own ways, and the movie ends amazing, and they get married, and they buy an island, and they live on it, and it's incredible, right? It's this great exchange that takes place right there underneath that tension. And that's, in a crude way, a picture of what happens in our life with justification, with God taking our sin and making us right in his eyes. You have you over here. I'm going to draw you. This represents you. So you are happy today. All right. Oh, and by the way, congratulations. Um, your New Year's resolution to lose some weight. You guys are looking good. You're looking amazing. You're looking really good. Love it. Um, so that's you. All right. And this great exchange takes place between you and the cross. Now that's about as far as my artsy kind of uh, ability goes. So I'm definitely not the guy trying to paint your, you know, your seaside uh, stuff. But here's, here's what takes place. These, this great exchange is when Jesus suffered and he gave his life on the cross and he descended and he rose again. Our sins were put on God. My sin is put on Jesus. That's half of the word. My sin's put on him. Now, here's what the Bible says about that in 1 Peter. It says that he, being Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. My sins were being put on Jesus. Okay? Now, the second part of that, though, is Christ's righteousness being put on me. So Christ's righteousness now comes over and is put on me. The great exchange takes place. Here's what Romans 3 has to say about that. It says, yet God, with undeserved kindness, he declares that we are righteous. He declares it. Who declares it? God declares it. He did this, God, he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. When my sin was put on Jesus, I was freed, and Jesus, God, declared me as being righteous. These two things, this great exchange, is what takes place through the work, the perfect work that doesn't need another brush stroke 
of Jesus when his work was done of the suffering and of the crucifixion and of the death and of the burial and of the rising again on the third day, that work of Jesus allowed for you and me to have the perfect exchange take place. My sins are put on him and his righteousness is put on me, which now allows us to be in relationship with one another. Which I'm just going to tell you right now, this is the greatest miracle you're ever going to see. It's the greatest miracle. It's the greatest work in the power of God that you are ever going to experience in your personal life. It's the greatest miracle. What's so interesting to me about this is that I could bring someone up here that's blind. We could pray for them. They could see, and man, the church would erupt with excitement. But you do realize that you can be blind and spend eternity with God in heaven, right? Because of this work. It's greater than that. People that have cancer right now are suffering with it. You know, it's, it's going to take their life. And they're going to die. It's like all of us are going to die. But their hope is not in the healing of the cancer. Their hope is in the fact that my sins were put on Christ and his righteousness was put on me. The greatest miracle of all time. And if you haven't experienced it, you need, you need to experience it. By surrendering your life to Jesus and committing your life to him. So how do you live underneath this blessing? Galatians tells us how to do it. It says in chapter 2, yet we know that a person is made right with God by what? By faith in who? Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ. Not by obeying the law. And we have believed in in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. It comes down to faith, period. Faith that Jesus suffered, that he died on a cross, but that he rose again and that he's coming back for his church, his people who have chosen to follow him. It's faith in Jesus, God's only son, our Lord, Period. It's not about your works. It's not about your works. It's, a, it's not about what you can do that increases God's favor. Remember, it's not about what you can do that it, it can even increase your own righteousness. Because righteousness isn't what you produce. It's what he produced. It's what he does. We now surrender to God and we live a life of obedience to God. But our righteousness comes from him. Not about your works that you do. So there's two schools of thought that are completely opposing to this. The justification thought, the one we've been talking about, is called imputed righteousness. It's, that word literally means that Jesus, he imputed or he put onto us righteousness. As he put onto himself our sin. Our sin imputed upon us, put on us from Adam. Our sin imputed upon Christ, put on Christ. Christ imputed righteousness back to us. But then there's another school of thought called infused righteousness. It's this works idea that somehow I have to increase righteousness in my life until God says, good enough, proven. Now you can spend eternity with me in heaven. You see this type of idea being played out with like infants, like as an example, an infant baptism starts the process Going to regular confession or the taking of sacraments continues the process. 
all the way until the last rites are read, which seals the process. And then if a person isn't righteous enough, then they have an opportunity to be in kind of a holding or waiting moment while their righteousness is being you know, approved by God, being increased, or their righteousness is being cleansed so that God would somehow approve of them. If this is the idea of righteousness in your book, you never really know where you stand with God, right? If this is your idea that there's somehow there's works that I have to do to make God more pleased with me so that I look more righteous, I look more right in God's eyes, then guess what? You're probably never going to get there. That's why it's about what Jesus put on us. He put it on you. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we walk it out. It's the work of Jesus. It's what he's done, what only he can do. So today, stop trying to impress God with all the things that you do. It doesn't work. Surrender to God. Lay your life down. And just say, thank you, Jesus for the perfect work you did. I want to live in your righteousness. I want to live there. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can live a life of obedience to you like you lived a life of obedience to your Father. May I just let your work be completed by itself. Be like taking a Picasso and going, you know what? I think it needs a couple of extra things to it. I'm going to take my paint and I'm going to put a couple spots on the Picasso. People would call you crazy. But if we're the ones trying to work out our righteousness, it's like us taking God's perfect painting that Jesus already said it is finished and going, oh, but wait a minute. I got some things that are going to need to be added to that. You know what we do when we start trying to adapt the perfectness of what God's done? We destroy it. We mess it up every time. That's what happens. So in a moment when we stand and we read the Apostles' Creed again and we quote it together, I don't ever want you to quote that part the same ever again. When we talk about Jesus suffered, crucified, died, was buried, was descended to the dead, and he rose again, it, 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 it encapsulates the perfect work of Jesus done so that we might have our sins forgiven, but we also might become righteous in God's eyes. The great exchange takes place. So why don't you stand with me? And let's prepare our hearts for worship today as we declare our belief in God, in the power of God, and in the perfect work of Jesus. As an act of worship, we recite this Apostles' Creed together during this teaching series. Why don't you join with me? Let's read it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day, he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Boldly, 
right? I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for your perfect work that you accomplished as you lived a sinless life and as you gave your life on the cross and as you conquered death, hell, and the grave. Lord, I'm so thankful that your work is good. It is perfect. It's exactly what I need. It's exactly what we need today. There's nothing else that could be added to it to make it any better. You said with your own words, it is finished. May we just trust in that. In fact, may we come before you right now in an attitude of worship, and may we just rest in the fact that your work is perfect for us. May we come with confidence, worship you, Jesus, with an attitude of complete gratitude, of praise, and of thankfulness that what you did is perfect. And all we need to do is respond with a heart of surrender, inviting you once again to be leader and Lord. So we worship you this moment. We worship you as the risen Savior who did the perfect work so that we might, with freedom, stand here this day and worship you with everything that's within us. We love you. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.